David Howarth, Professor of Law and Public Policy at the University of Cambridge and former MP. David, thank you for talking to Women's Parliamentary Radio. Indeed, thank you for helping set us up 15 years ago. Yes. We've gone from strength to strength. Great. If we look at the situation Boris Johnson's government is in, one Scottish court has ruled that it misled the Queen and it shouldn't have prorogued Parliament. Another court, the Supreme Court in the UK, will rule on that ruling and other rulings next week. Where do you think we are in terms of Boris Johnson and his government and whether or not they misled the Queen? Well, um, on the cases, obviously we're speaking uh, the week before the Supreme Court hearing, so we don't know what the result of that will be. The court faces a very difficult choice because the the difference between the Scottish judgment and the English judgment should uh, stress that the English judgment is in a lower court than the Scottish judgment, so the Scottish judgment is more important. The difference is not on what happened, but on whether a court should intervene in these circumstances. So the circumstances are that, according to the Scottish court's judgment, the government gave misleading, false reasons for the prorogation. And the real reasons it had, and this is the important part of the Scottish decision, is that it wanted to stymie Parliament. It wanted to prevent parliamentary democracy from operating in its ordinary, normal way. Now, that's an improper purpose, and according to the Scottish court, and the prorogation is struck down. At this present time, there is no prorogation of Parliament at all. Uh, will only come back if the appeal against the Scottish judgment succeeds. In contrast, the English court, which is the high court, or the lower court, didn't say that the, the um, motive was this or that. It simply said that this is not the kind of question that a court should decide, that this isn't a question for lawyers, it's a question for the political system to sort out. Now, the problem for the court is that in previous eras, the politicians we had were people of honour who could be uh, expected to follow the conventions and the, and the processes, the established processes, even if they weren't legally enforceable. And so in those circumstances, the effect of saying, well, this is a political matter for, for politicians in, in Parliament to sort out, the effect of that was that the conventions would be followed and therefore people would act decently and everything would probably work out fairly well. The problem now is that we're not in that era anymore. We have a government first instinct is to attack the rule of law, to attack the judges, not to follow the conventions previously followed and to try to find every little loophole to try to escape its obligations. So in those circumstances, the court is looks like it's the only institution that can step in to make sure that people act decently. So the Scottish court has moved to a, a, a position where the law, the courts are more involved than they were previously. The English court stayed with the old view that the court shouldn't get involved. The Supreme Court has to decide whether to stick to the old way of doing things or to change because of the, the new circumstances in which you can't trust politicians uh, to do the right thing. If the Supreme Court does indeed uphold the higher court in Scotland's judgment next week, will Boris Johnson have to resign 
because he misled the Queen? Well, it's not, not, of course, clear whether he did mislead the Queen because the advice of ministers on this kind of procedure is simply to do what they want. And it's not clear that the Prime Minister would have told the Queen why he was doing it. He might just have said, this is what we want. But I suspect that in the run-up to the visit to Balmoral, there might well have been exchanges, not necessarily between the Prime Minister and the Queen personally, although that might have happened, but between officials in Buckingham Palace and officials in, in Number 10, and there might well have been some element of, of misleading then. So if that happened, we don't know whether it happened, then that would be very serious, and the Prime Minister should resign, obviously. But my view is the Prime Minister should have resigned already anyway. That's because we're in a situation which, in the past, prime ministers would resign. So you need, need to go back to what happened last week. On the 3rd of September, the uh, prime minister posed a motion in parliament put down by opposition MPs and rebel MPs in his own party for the House to take control of the order paper for the purpose of passing a bill that the prime minister opposed. The prime minister said that that was a vote of confidence he lost. And as a consequence of losing the vote of confidence, he sacked, removed the whip from 21 of his own MPs. That, that's how we know it's, it's a vote of confidence. He said it was a vote of confidence, and then he acted on the basis that it was a vote of confidence. Then what he did, which is perfectly proper, is not to resign, but to ask for a general election, ask for the dissolution of Parliament. Now, in the old days, to do that, you would go to the Queen, because the Queen had the power to dissolve Parliament, making way for a general election. Since the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, the power of the Queen to grant a general election has been transferred to the House of Commons. So what the Prime Minister did was perfectly proper. He went to the House of Commons, who now can grant dissolutions, asked them for a dissolution. But they refused. Now, at that point, he should have resigned. That, that would be the right thing to do, according to the old ways of doing things. He's been defeated on a vote of confidence. He hasn't got a dissolution. And in the old days, you know, it was highly likely he would get a dissolution from the, from the Queen, but it wasn't an absolute certainty. There were, there were a set of rules called the Lascelles principles, which were made public in the early 50s, under which the monarch would usually grant a dissolution, but wouldn't always. So... The situation hasn't really changed dramatically. It's simply that the, the people who now grant the dissolution are not the monarch, but the House of Commons. So he should have resigned under the old rules. Instead, he came back to the Commons with a second attempt to get the Commons to grant a dissolution. Now, you can just about say that that was OK because of ambiguous statements from the leader of the opposition who didn't seem to understand how anything worked. So he, he kind of gave, the Liberal opposition gave the kind of vague impression that if the Ben Burt bill uh, went through and was, was given royal assent, then the, the opposition would support a general election. So on the basis that, that, that that might be the case, it's just about acceptable for the Prime Minister to ask the Commons for a second time for a dissolution. But the Commons on Monday turn down that request. And it's now absolutely clear that the Prime Minister cannot get a dissolution. So in those circumstances, he must resign. It doesn't matter really whether he misled the Queen. That's kind of icing on the cake. He should no longer be a fully-fledged Prime Minister. He should have resigned. 
and at that point become a caretaker prime minister. And in the period when he's a caretaker prime minister, the cabinet secretary and the Queen's private secretary liaise to try to establish whether anybody else could form a government. I should just say, as a Liberal Democrat MP for Cambridge, you did propose a fixed-term Parliament Act, but not the one that we have at the moment. If we just roll back a minute, Boris Johnson has said, do or die, he'll die in a ditch rather than not take the UK out of the EU on the 31st of October 2019. Given Parliament is prorogued, and who knows if it will come back or not. Well, it's not prorogued at the moment. Well, it's not <laughs> prorogued, but... It, it, it might become prorogued again next week if the Supreme Court decides to allow the appeal against the Scottish Government. But at this very moment, there's, a, there's an order of a Scottish Court. Uh, there's some kind of myth going around, there's no order, but there's an order of a Scottish Court, a declaration or a declarator, in Scots law terms, uh, which says that the prorogation itself, not just the advice, the prorogation itself, is null and of no effect. And so at the moment there is no prorogation, and under the standing orders of the House, we're, we're, we're speaking on a Thursday morning, so under standing order 9, the House should have met at half past 9. You can't really explain why the House is not meeting. If you say, well, the House is not meeting because of a prorogation, the answer to that is, what prorogation? It just isn't one to stop it meeting. It should should John Burko bring the House back? Well, it's not about bringing it back. He should just, you know, go into work in the normal way at 9.30. All right, but can Johnson get a withdrawal implementation bill through Parliament by the end of October, given that Parliament probably won't be sitting, or it may be sitting, but his ambition to take us out at the end of October is going to be thwarted because even if he gets some kind of agreement from Europe, which seems highly unlikely, but if he did, he couldn't get a wab through. Well, the speculation at the moment, again, you know, we're, we're speaking the week before the Supreme Court case, speculation at the moment is that the deal that's now on offer is an old deal. It's, it's the EU27's original backstop, the backstop that applied only to Northern Ireland and not to the rest of the UK, with the implication that there'll be a regulatory border through the Irish Sea. So let's say that that's the deal that, that is brought back. The question is, is and the most obvious question, is there a majority for that deal? If there's no majority for that deal, then it's pointless bringing forward the withdrawal agreement bill, because you can't get the deal through, then the WAB won't go through either. So the only circumstances in which um, he could get the web through, is when he's got a majority for that deal. But if he does have a majority for the deal, he might well have a majority for the web. And then the question is, how much time is there left? So what we've seen in recent weeks is that with a stable majority, it's possible to get legislation through fairly quickly. The rebel bill, the Ben Burt bill, went through in four days. And stable majorities in favour of the bill in the Commons and Lords, the government could do the same thing. But the issue is whether it has a, a majority of any sort in the Commons and whether it has a stable majority in the Lords. So I would, the less stable its majority, the longer it takes. So it's unlikely he would be able to get a web through by the end of October, even if he got some kind of deal, even if he got agreement to that deal? Well, it depends when he starts. Right, so, and it depends how, how, what, what majority has got in the Lords. Uh, Conservative dealers started to filibuster the Ben Burt bill. I couldn't see how they could complain if, if opponents of the deal did the same. And so the question then is, um, how long would that last? Proponents of 
of No Deal was saying it was quite disgraceful for anyone to try to put a program motion through in the Lords. And so, you know, what applies then applies now, and it might be difficult for the government to get the bill through in time. But, but it has to be said, if you've got a majority, you can get a bill through in a day in the Commons. I know that you think, although all eyes are on the UK Supreme Court's interpretation of the Scottish ruling when it meets next week, I know that you think there are longer-term implications of what's going on between the government and Parliament at the moment, and those implications are greater, you said, than a no-deal outcome. What's wrong? Well, it's not just the relationship between the, um, the government and Parliament, and even more seriously, the relationship between the government and the judges. We have, basically, a government that refuses to recognise the rule of law, that um, threatens not to obey statutes passed by Parliament, and when it loses a case, immediately attacks the judiciary. Now, when it does this, it then rows back, either, either because of dissent within the government. The, the, the present Lord Chancellor, uh, Robert Buckland, has been rather more uh, robust in defending the judges than some of his predecessors. Or it might just be a tactic, that they attack the judiciary, that causes a fuss, and then they say, oh, no, we didn't really mean that. But then the next time they lose a case, they attack the judiciary again. And so this is fundamentally tack on the institutions of the, of the state. We have a government which doesn't care about preserving the, the, the legitimacy of the, of the other institutions apart from itself. And that, in the end, would threaten the, its own legitimacy. So if you have a fundamental conflict between the government and the courts <coughs> and um, parliament when it, uh, in its legislative capacity, you then have a very, very serious problem. The serious problem is that eventually, it might, and this might happen very quickly, you end up with an institutional crisis, that the civil service doesn't know who to obey, whether it should obey the law, whether it should follow what a majority in the Commons wants, whether it should do what the government wants, even though the government is going against both those. And I, I did some research on this not so long ago, you know, a few years ago, where we asked civil servants, senior civil servants, what, what would happen in this kind of circumstance. And the, the answers were very mixed, that some civil servants said they would, they would follow the law, and other civil servants said that they would follow what ministers said, uh, whatever, even if the, 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 the law was against them. And a third group said that they would follow what ministers said as long as ministers still had the confidence of the House of Commons. So you can see this, this vast confusion is going to reign if you have a government that refuses to recognise the law and refuses to recognise that it's lost the confidence of the House and therefore shouldn't be the government in a, in a fully-fledged sense. But moving on from that, the crisis not just in the civil service but in other institutions of the state. I mean, uh, who, what does the police do? Do the police follow court judgments, which might be against the Prime Minister himself personally, or do they step back and, and not intervene in a dispute between the courts and the government? If the police do remain neutral, then the police are not following the rule of law either. And then finally, and most seriously of all, what would the army do? Who's the army going to obey? Now, I should say that in my research, the people who were most committed to the rule of law, among all the people I interviewed, were the generals and civil servants who'd served in the Ministry of Defence. So I'm fairly confident that the, that the army, in the end, would uphold the courts. But you can see how serious this is. This is a threat of the most fundamental kind. 
And the present prime minister is playing with something he plainly doesn't understand. And the, the rule of law is important not just for government, it's, it's important for everybody. If the government won't obey the law, why should anybody else? Right? So that threatens everybody's life and property and well-being. And also, if you have a government that doesn't obey the law, threatens to, to, to break legal standards and rules, why would anyone lend any money to it? So, so, so this is going to bite them in the, in the sovereign bond market. They're going to have to pay a premium, the premium that's paid by banana republics, because governments that are not committed to the rule of law are obviously a greater default risk. That's a prediction that takes us into the future and which is already causing alarm, if you read the Twitterati, particularly when government ministers and Secretary of State go out and attack judges as they have done after the Scottish ruling. But I know you think that a written constitution isn't necessarily the answer. So finally, David, how can we protect ourselves to ensure the rule of law is obeyed? Is there a path, is there a route to this? apart from Boris Johnson resigning, of course. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not against a codified constitution. I just don't think it's the, the ultimate answer to the questions that are being posed. The problem is that once the institutions of the state lose legitimacy, you can't draft your way back to legitimacy. That if you have a populist authoritarian government that refuses to recognise the courts and it gets support from a, 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 an important chunk of the population, it's difficult to see how you get back. You, t you turn basically into Argentina. So then there needs to be institutional reform. There needs to be either in a, a constitutional form or in legislative form a series of changes to remove the arbitrary power of the prime minister to act in this way. So, so all these powers which are exercised theoretically by advising the queen, they should all be removed. They should either be abolished altogether or given to somebody else. Um, you need to think carefully about who to give them to if you're going to preserve them at all. For example, the, there's been some chatter about the Prime Minister getting the Queen to veto bills. Uh, we need a statute that says that, that can't happen. Um, I don't think it could happen anyway, but some people think it can. So it, it, just in case, we need a statute to say that can't happen. But we need to do this before the legitimacy of the state collapses altogether. But that's it, isn't it? Wouldn't people just say, oh, well, let's kick that into the long grass because we can't have those kind of institutional reforms while Brexit is going on? But it's a chicken and egg argument. Well, I think the, the, the conclusion, if I can kind of step out of my expert role for a minute, the conclusion is that only the removal of this government will save the institutions. And you've got to start with that. David Howarth, thank you very much indeed for talking to Women's Parliamentary Radio today. I've enjoyed listening to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure.